When you talk about the book of Daniel, there are two very different responses that you get. It is either somebody's favorite book with all their favorite stories, the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and all that. Or it is so confusing and so dense that there's really no point in reading it in the first place. And I came across both as I was studying for this and reading a bunch of introductions of Daniel. You'd get some that say, this is a wonderful book. It's so great. Everybody loves it. Everybody knows it. And somebody else who goes, perhaps the most mysterious book of all the Bible. So it is, it is kind of both of those things. There's going to be a lot of familiar stuff in here. There's going to be a lot of stuff that maybe you are, are unfamiliar with or you're going to go, really, I did not realize that was in there. Or when I read it, I had no idea what it meant. So I just kept going. Because among other things, the book of Daniel is the prophetic linchpin of the Old Testament. And not only that, but it is the key to understanding all end times prophecy in your Bible, especially the book of Revelation. I remember seeing some person who was not a believer, but they were discussing the book of Revelation on the internet. And they said, it's just the most confusing, confounding fever dream, like drug-induced episode. Is What is this book? And I remember thinking, if you'd read Daniel, it'd be a little more easy for you to understand. It wouldn't be that confusing. Or Zechariah and Ezekiel or Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. But all of those things that I just listed all look back to Daniel as well. So it is one of the most important books for us to understand, which is why we're going to study it. But ultimately, when you zoom out from all of that, the book of Daniel is about God's people living in evil days in an evil nation. And it's written not just to show them how to live. There's a lot of that. But it's also going to show them that God intends to do something about it. And God gives us a forecast of what the nations will look like unto the end as well as the fact that the rulers and the kings and the presidents and the governors are not in as much control as they think they are. There's going to be several times in the book of Daniel where we see kings humbled before the Lord. So for that reason, it is important for us to take the book nice and slow, to gain an understanding of it. You might not get it all the first time through, but if you get a little more than last time, well, then that's good. And then that'll prepare us to study some of those other books. Now, I always take time. It's good to do this. Every time we start a new book, to get the background of the book before we read it. And I would say that the background of the book of Daniel is more important than most. You you can pick it up and just start reading it, of course. But there is so much that informs how we read Daniel. And not only that, so much of it is highly disputed, If you've ever spent any time reading or hearing a secular perspective on the book of Daniel, they will pretty much tell you they don't believe any of it is legitimate. Not only not prophetic, but it's forged. It's fake. It came away later. It was made up. Several authors compiled it over several different times to push their political agenda. It's got prophecies that failed. And so it's, it's a nice piece of stories for children. But beyond that, it has no value. So for that reason, I obviously disagree with all that. And I think you do too. But we have answers to those questions. Because sometimes those things can be presented like Christians have never even thought about this before. You know, it's like, if people knew about this, they would throw their Bibles away. Well, no, we do know about those things. So we're going to get into stuff right now about the authorship of Daniel and the date of Daniel and things like that that may seem 
to you, well, how is this relevant to me? It's relevant because what if your 17-year-old son is poking around YouTube and finds somebody that gives all these reasons why the book of Daniel isn't legitimate and we don't have answers for him? We do have answers. So it's good for us to learn these things and it'll help us go a little deeper into our study. So let's get to the obvious ones. The book was written by our main character, Daniel, who is a captive Jew in the land of Babylon and then Persia when Babylon was conquered by Persia. There are some who will say perhaps the narrative portions of the first half of Daniel were written by a scribe later because the first half of Daniel is written in the third person. It'll say Daniel did or Daniel said. And then the second half when he's doing the prophecies, he'll use the first person saying, I saw and I said. But I mean, John writes about himself in the third person in his books and so do several other authors of the New Testament. So it's, there's no reason for us to think that Daniel couldn't have written all of this. That would put the date of its composure as sometime in the late 6th century BC. That would be the low 500s BC. However, this has been disputed by the higher critics Higher criticism with a capital H and a capital C is something that came out of the 1800s in Germany and then spread to the rest of the intellectual world where people pretty much said, let's pick the Bible apart, apply our own theories to it. And in the process, they dismantled the faith of an awful lot of people. They claim that the book of Daniel was not written by Daniel. If Daniel was a real person at all, he probably was, but they took the name of a famous man, somebody else wrote a bunch of wonderful stories about him, and made up a bunch of prophecies in order to push their agenda during the time of the Maccabees when Israel was rebelling against Greece. And they would put that around 176 BC is when they would say that. And the reason is because they say that uh, Daniel prophesied pretty much every accurate and fulfilled prophecy of Daniel had to come before it was written, which would have to put it around 176. And then when, as they see it, the prophecies went wrong, then it could come after that. So they have to stick it right at a very specific date. So I want to look at some of the reasons why secular scholars and, and even liberal, and when I say liberal here, I mean theologically liberal Christians are opposed to the book of Daniel. And I'll, we'll go through four, and uh, none of these are, are too intimidating for you. But the first thing they'll say is that there are historical inaccuracies in the book of Daniel. They'll say if Daniel really was written in Babylon and in Persia, he ought to have known his history a little better. And some of the things he says are just simply not true, so they must have been made up. I'll give you a few examples. They have not yet been able to identify Darius archaeologically. So Daniel writes about him, but we don't have historical records of a man named Darius. They will say Daniel prophesied that his Antichrist, he doesn't use that term, but that's the one you're familiar with, his Antichrist, who was obviously Antiochus Epiphanes IV, would be dead in Jerusalem, but he didn't die in Jerusalem. So therefore, uh, Daniel's prophecies were wrong. He predicted it would happen for propaganda purposes, but then it didn't. However, there are plausible answers to every single one of those things. They used to say Daniel couldn't be true because they had never heard of anybody named Belshazzar before. And then somebody stuck a shovel in the desert and pulled out something that talked about a man named Belshazzar, who was a prince of Babylon and was known for his debaucheries and wild parties, which fits exactly with what Daniel talked about. So now it's okay, well, you have him, but you don't have Darius yet. Well, there are some prospective answers of why we could 
called this man Darius or this guy Darius, or maybe it's just somebody we haven't found yet. There's lots of stuff from ancient history we just haven't discovered. They used to say there was no such thing as the Hittites, and that was why the Bible couldn't be true. And then they discovered all this Hittite stuff. So it's not good to bet against the Bible as history. We found something not long ago called the Cyrus Cylinder, which is a, it's a, they used to put text on these cylinders like this, and you would roll them in clay, and that's how you would write them down. But it describes the fall of Babylon right in line with how Daniel describes the fall of Babylon. Before, they used to say, this whole story with Belshazzar and, and Persia coming in and taking over, there's, that never happened. We have no evidence of that until all of a sudden we do. Well, what about the prophecies that weren't fulfilled? Well, as you see, we'll look at this. When Daniel is prophesying the little horn that will rise up, right? And that will will blaspheme for this many days. And then he will be destroyed. You have in Daniel something called near and far prophecy. You have prophecy of the days that were immediately to follow. But then as you'll see, at, at a certain point, these prophecies will just rise up. And now we're talking about the end of the world. So we as conservative, again, theologically conservative Christians reading this say, well, we wouldn't expect that to have necessarily happened. This is a prophecy for the end of days. But of course, if you say end of days means the days in which he was living, then you can ignore that. So we'll address all of these as we go through, but these historical inaccuracies are nothing that cannot be surmounted, so-called historical inaccuracies. Number two is linguistic anachronisms. This means words that are used supposedly before they were even invented. What do I mean by this? So there are, in the book of Daniel, loan words from Persia and from Greece. What's a loan word? Quesadilla is a loan word. It's Spanish, but we use it in English to talk about a quesadilla, right? So... You see Persian words in here. You see Greek words in there. And they say if he was writing from Babylon, he wouldn't have Persian words and he wouldn't have Greek words. Well, first of all, we believe he was writing in Persia, so I have no reason why that can be a problem. But all those Persian words, they're mostly titles. So words like satraps, that's a Persian word. And I mean, that just kind of makes sense. It's like quesadilla. That doesn't mean that America had been conquered by Mexico. That just means that we have, we know what this is and we're using the actual name for it. And there are only three Greek loan words and they're all instruments. Remember when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, when you hear the sound of the psaltery and the lyre and all that, there's, those are Greek words, some of them. But again, that doesn't mean that Greeks was in power at this time. That just means that Babylon had brought in some exotic instruments from Greece. So this would make sense in context to me that nations have interaction with each other. Nations use different words. You ever been in a different country and you hear somebody speaking their language and all of a sudden some American word pops out? It's like, oh, hey, I recognize that one. Yeah, because nations borrow words from each other. And in fact, recent studies of the book of Daniel and the Aramaic language he uses have demonstrated conclusively, I wish I had more time to get into this, but you can look it up on your own time, that the Aramaic Daniel uses is from an older period of Aramaic, not the time of the Maccabees. So for example, if you were to open up a book and say, this book was written in 2022 America, And it's saying, but soft, what light through yonder breaks? It is the east and Juliet is the sun. It's like, that's not how they talked in 2022. It's English, but it's older English, right? Or you go even farther back and it's like Beowulf English and you can't even understand it or read it anymore. It's like that. It's older Aramaic. It's been proven because we found all this other literature in Aramaic from those times. And it's very plain. Daniel doesn't belong over here. It belongs over there. 
So, so much for linguistic matters. The third reason they'll put up there is theological complexity. This one is just purely speculative. They'll say Daniel talks about the resurrection. Daniel talks about an end times kingdom that will last forever. And we know that these are doctrines that were not taught until the time of the Maccabees, that intertestamental period. However, there are plenty of books in the Old Testament that speak of resurrection. We read one this morning in Psalm 118. He will not abandon me to death, right? And secondly, how do you know? How do you know they weren't teaching that at that time? How do you know that Daniel talking about the resurrection did not inspire people like the Maccabees to talk about it more? This is all speculative. What they'll say is, well, these things had to evolve over time. It was too complicated, to which I say, I don't believe that. I don't think that doctrine has to evolve over time. I believe in God. I believe God can reveal doctrine. And in fact, that's what Daniel is kind of all about, isn't it? Is God breaking in and said, I'm just going to tell you stuff. I'm just going to go ahead and give you the answers, Daniel. So that's why we believe that. Speculative things like, well, the resurrection and the end times, this doctrine was used when and invented to reassure the Jews that were being oppressed by Greece. Like just because they were used that way didn't mean they had to be invented that way. Certain doctrines will become more dear to you depending on the times in which you live. Isn't that true? Not true in your own life. That's something you've always known that didn't mean quite as much to you until you went through something, and now it really means something to you. So that's just totally speculative. That, that's kind of like the snake eating its own tail thing. That's just a circular argument. And really what it boils down to is number four. Why do they say Daniel can't be true? Because of anti-supernatural bias. This is really what it boils down to. This is the real answer. This is why you have to make up all of these weak arguments that I just went through. Daniel, it is said, cannot be scripture because he tells us exactly what happened during the time of Persia and Greece. He talks about Alexander the Great. He talks about Antiochus Epiphanes and the rebellion of the Maccabees. So this could not possibly have been said ahead of time because how could he have known? Well, you're on to something there, actually. But when you look at this and you say every bit of evidence we have, especially the language, points to this being written earlier, and Daniel describes all of hundreds of years of history in incredible symbolic detail, shouldn't that tell you not that this isn't true, but that it is true? Okay, this must actually be true. But if you believe ahead of time, that there is no such thing as God, there is no such thing as prophecy. If you read a prophecy that was then fulfilled, you have to move it after the prophecy. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense to you. And that's really what it boils down to. It had to have been written in 176, not because of archaeology or history or theology or linguistics, but because he couldn't have known this stuff. But to me, that just says, all right, this is legitimately the prophecy of God. Unless you have a philosophical bias against the book of Daniel, you have to put it around the time it was written by a man named Daniel. And as we go through the book, we're going to look at each one of these things, and it's going to blow some of your minds how specific this stuff is. Stuff that you're like, I didn't even know the Bible talked about that. Well, it does. You cannot just throw out a theory and say, well, this is what I believe, therefore you have to prove it. The Bible is always held to a weirdly high standard compared to other books and other things from this time period. Daniel should count as a primary source. People who say things like, well, we have no evidence for a person named Darius. Yeah, you do, because Daniel wrote about him. 
Well, we don't have anything besides that. Well, why shouldn't the Bible count? If you have a bias against the Bible, then you say it can't count. But if you don't, you should say, all right, then eventually we should probably discover something about a guy named Darius. So those are the objections. And I hope you can see that people will just say things like, the book of Daniel has been proven to be false. And then you actually dig in that a little bit and you read the footnotes and you see what they're talking about. It's like, really, that's all you got? There are very smart, very pious Christians that are spend their days answering these questions. So don't let anybody ever intimidate you with the book of Daniel or anything else. To the contrary, the book of Ezekiel refers to Daniel, the person of Daniel, three times. Twice in chapter 14 and once in 28, Ezekiel talks about Daniel and lifts him up as an example of a righteous and wise man. Now, Ezekiel prophesied during the same time as Daniel, actually after the start of Daniel. There's some overlap, but he came later. And he talks about Daniel as a godly, holy man. So apparently Ezekiel knew who Daniel was. He doesn't quote from Daniel, which makes exact sense because Daniel was composing the book at the time or maybe even later than the time. But they knew about him. Of course they would have known about him. If you're a Jew coming into exile and you know that we've got a guy in the palace, yeah, you know who Daniel is. Even Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 talks about the abomination of desolation which Daniel wrote about. Now, unless you believe Jesus was lying or was wrong, that should kind of settle it. Jesus said, Daniel wrote this. And if you say, well, maybe Jesus was just saying the book of Daniel, but he didn't say that. He said, Daniel, the person wrote this thing down. Well, Jesus was just, he knew they would never get it. So Jesus just told them the lie that they already believed. That's not what Jesus does, right? Jesus does not lie for our own benefit. He tells us the truth, even when we don't want to hear it. So Old and New Testament corroboration of the person of Daniel. Not only that, but let's come back to this intertestamental stuff with a little kinder eye here. The intertestamental writings, meaning between Malachi and Matthew, not scripture, but the other books that were written during this time, Daniel was one of their favorite books. They wrote deliberately in imitation of Daniel. He set the tone for the apocalyptic books in between the Testaments. They were deliberately writing in imitation of him, which we'll talk about this later, but many people want to discount a lot of Daniel's prophecies because they say it's the apocalypse genre. But if you look at history, Daniel pretty much invented the apocalypse genre, at least as far as the intertestamental period was concerned. So again, it's one of those chicken or the egg things. It's like you can't just say, well, it belongs to this category if he's the one that set the tone for it. But you read about it. The second Maccabees will talk about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and the other writings which are not scripture but that were written during that time. They'll use phrases and imagery and symbols from Daniel. So obviously they knew about it and we know those books are being written in the 200s and the 100s BC. So Daniel had clearly had had enough of an impact that around that time they would write about it like it was scripture. Books that were just written do not become scripture. Have you noticed that? Somebody's like, hey, I published this new book. It's like, let's add it to the Bible. No, it takes a minute, which is good. It should take a minute. When we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in the early 1900s, we see that the book of Daniel had been preserved with the rest of Scripture in Hebrew since at least the time of Jesus. Before that, all we had was was Greek versions of Daniel, the oldest ones we had, the Septuagint 
which is the, the official Greek translation of the Old Testament that the New Testament quotes most of the time. We discover the Dead Sea Scrolls. We find Hebrew copies that match the Greek, by the way, and that was included with the rest of the Old Testament canon. So that means by the time of Jesus, with all that said, it was definitively accepted as scripture, not just another book. And the Septuagint was translated in the right around 200 AD somewhere or BC somewhere in there. So clearly, at least by that time, if they had translated it, this drives me crazy. It's like if they had translated it with the rest of scripture, definitely by 150 BC at the latest, then it couldn't have been written just before that. But again, these, these facts are less important than a bias against prophecy. Josephus talks about Daniel. He talks about how Alexander the Great encountered the book of Daniel and it caused him to spare the nation of Judah. We'll talk about that later. So pretty much everything we have points us towards the book of Daniel being written by Daniel in the place it claims to have been written at the time it claims to have been written, unless you believe that these prophecies are so specific they could not have been made beforehand. But if you believe in a God that knows the future and can tell the future as we do, then all this is just very exciting for us. Now let's talk about the contents of the book of Daniel. Some of you will know about this. There are some additional parts of Daniel that were added later that are not included in our Bibles today. These include the stories of Susanna and the elders. This includes the prayer of Azariah and the song of the three children during the fiery furnace scene. This includes the episode of Bell and the dragon. These are stories that were added later after the time. They were not included in the original version of Daniel because we, the oldest versions we have do not include it. And these parts were never canonized, meaning they were never viewed by Jews or Christians as scripture, although they were read and enjoyed by early Christians. And a lot of their uh, tombs and sarcophagi and things that they used to carve had images from these sections. But even when Jerome translated the Vulgate into Latin, he made it very clear these sections are not received as scripture. So that's why they're not in your New Te Old Testament right in front of you. It was not officially canonized, meaning tried to be included into the canon until the Council of Trent, which was the Catholic response to the Protestant Reformation around 1545. So not scripture. You may have them depending on the version that you have, but we're not going to be studying them here. Something interesting about the book of Daniel, it was written in two different languages. It wasn't just written in Hebrew, like the rest of the Old Testament. It was written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The beginning and the end are in Hebrew, and the middle section is in Aramaic. Hebrew is from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 3, and then chapter 8 through 12. And the Aramaic portion is chapter 2, verse 4, to the end of chapter 7. Aramaic was the common language of the time. Sort of how Greek became the common language of the time around Jesus' day. Aramaic was the common language of the time then. And it helps us outline the book because with a little bit of overlap here, it's a loose outline, the Hebrew portions focus more on the destiny of Israel and the Aramaic portions focus more on the destiny of the nations, the Gentiles. So that could be why Daniel wrote it that way. Ezra, the book of Ezra, also has some sections in Aramaic. And I want to say Ezekiel might have a couple of verses as well, but don't quote me on that. The best way, I think, to outline the book of Daniel is just to cut it in half. The first six chapters are describing what we call biography. It's the stories of Daniel. This is where you have the refusal to eat the king's delicacies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the golden, with the golden statue, with Daniel in the lion's den. And then when you hit chapter 7 through 12, it's prophecy. 
Now, there is prophecy in the first six chapters, but 7 through 12 is when you get all those crazy visions of the different beasts and all of that. But that's the best way to break it down. And as I said already, the main idea of Daniel is that God is sovereign over history, and God's people need to endure through history, trusting his sovereignty, and to obey him. So much of the book of Daniel, God is peeling back the curtain and showing us what is really behind world events. I think it'll be a really encouraging thing for us to realize that men are not the only ones at play in the things that we see in the news every day, but that God is at work. Angels and demons are battling over what's happening and that we are not permitted to despair or to compromise because of what we see around us. God is in control. So ultimately what you have before you is an accurate record of the man Daniel, of his life and the revelations given to him by God, preserved in your Bible for us to read and to study together. It is inspired, it is infallible, it is inerrant, and it is authoritative for your life and mine. All right? Now let's read the first two verses. We're not going to get very far because I really want to make sure we set the tone here. Let's read the first two verses of Daniel together. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. These two verses are setting the historical stage, which we could call the beginning of the end of Judah. If you know your biblical history, the 12 tribes were united until after the death of Solomon, at which time they broke into two different kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which retained the name Israel, sometimes called Samaria, and the southern kingdom, which retained the name Judah. And we are now talking about the fall or the beginning of the fall of Judah. Real quick note here. He says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, that Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem. If you read Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 1, Jeremiah will say that this happened in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. And a lot of atheists love to make a really big deal out of that and say, see, they can't even get their numbers right. But this really is not that complicated. I will just put it this way. When Israel counted years, they counted the zero year as one. So we say that a baby, when, is, when they're born, we'll say they're four months, six months, eight months, and then they have their first birthday, we'll say they're one year old. Israel would count it that when the baby is born, he's one. He's in his first year, and then at his first birthday, he'll turn two. That's how they counted numbers. Babylon counted it the way we do. So this makes perfect sense that Jeremiah, writing from Jerusalem to the Jews, would use the Hebrew reckoning of time, And Daniel, writing in Babylon, in a Babylonian and Persian context, would use Babylonian reckoning of time. So it's really not a conflict, but I'm trying to point out all these things that when you look up the book of Daniel, there's going to be a lot of snarky people trying to throw it in your face. I want to make sure you have answers to these. So we're taken back to the the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, which is 605 BC. We can nail down this date just about exactly. The Exodus happened, we believe, we hold to what's called the early date of the Exodus, around 1440 B.C. So it's been a little over 800 years since they left Egypt. They've been living in the land. But in 605 B.C., the first exiles were taken from Jerusalem to the land of Shinar, 
We'll talk about that, what that means. It's a, it's a name for Babylon, which is going to be obvious as we continue, but I'll say why they use that name in just a moment. Let's look at our history here. So this is from Kings, this is from Chronicles, but I want to set the stage here because this is such a, a political and national, like wars and armies and imperial book. I want us to know where we stand. In the land of Judah, King Hezekiah had been one of the best rulers they ever had. You know, you had some good ones that were great, like, like David, and then Hezekiah's in that list. And then other guys that were less good, like Solomon and Asa, who were good but made some mistakes. And then a lot of wicked kings. But Hezekiah was, was awesome. He was one of the best rulers they ever had. And there's a story in his life where emissaries from Babylon come to Hezekiah. They found out he had been sick, and they came to see how he was doing. They weren't enemies at this time. And Hezekiah gives them a grand tour of Jerusalem, and even takes them and shows them the treasuries of the temple. It's kind of showing off a little bit, right? Trying to, trying to remind them, hey, I've got money and I've got power. Don't mess with me. Well, when he leaves, Babylon leaves, Isaiah shows up, the prophet, and he says, did you show the king of Babylon everything? He goes, yeah, I did. I showed him everything. And he goes, the Lord has told me in 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 17 and 18, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah kind of shrugs that off. He goes, oh, it's not going to happen to me, so I guess it's fine. Not his finest moment, I must say. But Isaiah prophesied when things were good, when everything was fine, and he was just spending time with an ally. He says, this nation is the one that's going to be destroying Jerusalem. They're going to take some of your sons away and put them to work for his king. Well, Hezekiah, when he dies, his son Manasseh becomes king. And Manasseh was not only the longest reigning king Judah ever had, it was 55 years. He was the worst king Judah had ever had. Manasseh was one of the most wicked kings of Israel or Judah ever. He was an idolater. He set up pornographic idols in the temple, closed off the holy place and turned it over to the worship of Asherah. He allowed the high places to be rebuilt. He was a magician, a sorcerer, and a necromancer. And he made one of his own sons to pass through the fires of Molech, which means he sacrificed one of his kids on a burning pagan altar. The king of Judah. Well, God was not about to put up with that. God actually had Manasseh be kidnapped by the king of Assyria and taken to Assyria as captive for a time before he was brought back. Now, Manasseh repented. Manasseh is one of the most amazing stories of the Old Testament. He had a genuine repentance. The most wicked king they ever had repented and turned back to the Lord. And so God allowed the judgment to be delayed for a time. But in 2 Kings 21, the prophets had said to Manasseh, because of you, judgment is definitely coming. Is there a way of saying, because of you, I'm not going to let this go. I might delay judgment. I might even allow it to be delayed for a long time. But because of what you've done, I cannot allow that to continue. God never forgets. But despite Manasseh's repentance, his son, Ammon, was even worse than he was. And God only allowed him to live for two years. Or to reign for two years, I should say. And the judgment was surely coming. But Ammon had a son named Josiah. And you all know about Josiah. Josiah, other than David, is held up in the Bible as the best king Israel or Judah ever had. 
Josiah went about enforcing revival in his land. This is when they went back into the house of the Lord and they found the book of the law and the priest Hilkiah brings it back and they read it and they realize we haven't done any of this stuff. And so I said, what are we going to do? And the prophetess Huldah says, you got to get back or the Lord's going to destroy this, this nation. So they reestablish the worship of the Lord in the temple. They begin to teach the people the book of the law. They have Passover for the first time in generations. He tears down the high places and destroys the false altars. And he doesn't just break them, he desecrates them. Meaning he destroys the altars, executes the priests, and burns the bones of the priests on those altars so that they can never be used again. It was an amazing time. But Josiah was killed by a man named Pharaoh Necho. We're going to hear more about him in a minute. Pharaoh Necho was going to battle and was going to travel through Judah to do it. Much like the First World War and, and going, Germany going through Belgium to get to France. Well, Josiah rides out to battle and says, you're not going through my land. And Pharaoh says, Josiah, I like you. You're a good guy. I have no problem with you. But if you get in my way, I'm going to crush you like a bug. And that is exactly what happened. Josiah was killed in that battle. And his son Jehoahaz was made king. But what happens next, you've got to get a sense of the, of the political feel. So that's, that, that's where Israel has been. But you've got to get a sense. Let, let's zoom out and see where we are. What was happening during this time? Assyria had been the dominant power in the ancient Near East for a very long time. Nineveh was their capital. There's lots of books in the Old Testament written about Assyria and Nineveh. You read about them in Isaiah. Nahum is a prophecy against Nineveh. The book of Jonah, of course, right, is talking about Assyria. They were a cruel, wicked people. And in fact, it was Assyria that destroyed the northern kingdom. Israel was taken into captivity by the Assyrians. And the Assyrians marched on Judah and surrounded the city of Jerusalem. They had conquered everything but the holy city until God intervened with his angels and slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night and allowed Judah to continue. Although they were still under the thumb of Assyria because that was the dominant empire in the area. Until Babylon. Babylon had been under the thumb of Assyria, part of the empire, until they rebelled. And they were the ones who broke the empire apart and destroyed Assyria as a world power at the time. Now this leaves a power vacuum. When Assyria is gone and there's no more empire, who's going to be the new empire? You had Egypt and Babylon fighting with each other to pick over the remains of Assyria. And of course, you know, Egypt is in northern Africa. Babylon is off to the northeast of, of Israel. They're right in the middle. And in fact, they're right in that narrow strip of land that connects Asia to Africa. So they were the battleground. Now, after Necho, Pharaoh Necho, picking up our story of Judah here, after he killed Josiah, they made his son Jehoahaz king. But three months later, Pharaoh Necho comes back to Jerusalem. What seems to have happened is that Josiah died. Pharaoh says, I'll deal with you people later. He goes off and wins his battle and comes back after three months. And he deposes Jehoahaz. He takes Jehoahaz with him to Egypt where he's going to die. And he replaced Jehoahaz with Josiah's other son, Eliakim. But Necho changed his name to Jehoiakim. So now we're starting to get connected to the book of Daniel here. So Jehoiakim 
was the brother of the rightful heir of Judah, who had not only been put in place by Egypt, he had been renamed by Egypt. It's a shameful thing. They were under the thumb of Egypt. They were having to pay tribute to Pharaoh Necho. But during this time period, Babylon and Egypt are at war with each other. And there was a famous general prince from the land of Babylon whose name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was the Alexander the Great of Babylon. He was the one that was going out and conquering all these nations. And while he was in the field fighting, his father, who was a man named Nabopolassar, he was the one that had rebelled against Assyria and established Babylon as an empire. His father died. During that same campaign, Nebuchadnezzar defeats Egypt in a decisive battle at Carchemish. This is history now. You can, you can read this on your own time. And what he did, before he went back to Babylon to claim his throne, he went around to the, the areas in Libya and Phoenicia and Judah and began to assert control over the places that Egypt had been in charge of. So Babylon crushes Assyria. Egypt steps in and asserts control over Israel and the surrounding nations. Babylon comes in and destroys Egypt. Obviously not completely, but they're not going to be a world power like they had been. And that's when Babylon takes control over Judah. And in order to assert his authority, Babylon's authority over the land of Judah, he takes golden vessels out of the temple and brings them back. He would actually do this a couple times if you read your story. And it gets worse and worse every time, leading to the destruction of the temple. But can you see how this is a power move here? The things that were used to serve your gods are going to become and stationed in the house of my God. Now, the Philistines had learned a while ago that you didn't mess with the Lord like that. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn the same lesson. But this was of the Lord. This was not just some pagan king coming in and doing pagan things. God had ordained this. Habakkuk had said, Lord, how long until you judge the wickedness of my people? He says, not long. I'm raising up the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans was another name for the Babylonians. It was the ruling class of the Babylonians. And that's exactly what happened. And he not only took the vessels of the temple, establishing authority over Judah, he also took captives with him. Shall we read verses 3 through 7 now? Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. Again, the Chaldeans were the ruling class of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. So you can see the same thing that happened to Jehoiakim whose real name was Eliakim, is now happening to these men. In 586, Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. But that's still 20 years away at this point. The great exile took place in stages. Daniel and his friends were part of the first wave. 
These young nobles were chosen to stand before the king as courtiers. If you've ever watched any kind of medieval movie where the king is there with his court, if you've ever watched something like Lord of the Rings or Game of Thrones along those lines, they were going to be the kind of people that stood in the court from another country. They were to be educated, if you look at this, in politics and wisdom and magic. They also might have been made eunuchs. Eunuch was a name for a court official, but it is also entirely possible that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were castrated when they were brought to Babylon, although it's not certain. They were treated well. They were given the best of the king's food. The purpose was what? To have hostages, first of all. Jehoiakim, if you rebel against us, we're going to execute one of your sons every day until you get back in line. But also, they were trying to seed loyalty to Babylon among the nobility of Israel. Remember that scene from Animal Farm where the pigs take the dogs away? And they, edu they educate the dogs and the dogs come back and they're enforcing all their authority against their own parents? Same thing. Give me your kids. I'll educate them. I'll train them. They'll speak my language. I'll call them by my names. They're going to learn my truth and worship my gods. So then, if trouble arises in Judah, what do I have? I'll send back a king who is of the royal line, but he belongs to me. It's their way of consolidating power over Judah. And these four boys, perhaps as young as preteens, Daniel's going to live for a very long time. So he probably was quite young, 12, 13 years old maybe had their names changed. They're in the land of Shinar. Shinar was what they called the land of Babylon in Genesis chapter 10. It was the land that Nimrod had founded. Nimrod was a, it says, a hunter before the Lord. The idea being he was the first warlord of the world. He founded the cities of Babel, the city of Uruk, the city of Akkad, the city of Nineveh. All of these ancient Pagan nations founded in Shinar, where later they would build the Tower of Babel. They had lost their promised land and been brought to the land of Nimrod, the land of the Tower of Babel, the land that represented the seat of idolatry and rebellion against God. As the law and the prophets had warned them. We just read not long ago in Leviticus 26, 33, where God told the children of Israel, if you do not keep this covenant, he said, I will scatter you among the nations. I will unsheath the sword after you. Your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. This was part of the deal they made with God back at Mount Sinai and God is enforcing it. But he didn't do it without warning. The book of Jeremiah is all about God sending one last prophet to warn the people. Jeremiah had said in Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11, Thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. God warned them what would happen. Exile. And Daniel is the first of what are called the exilic books of the Old Testament. This means books that were written during the exile. The other two are Esther and Ezekiel. And they're all about how to live and what to think for the people who are living in exile. 
And now if we can take some time and, and turn our attention to applying what we've learned here today for our last few minutes. In one very important sense, the book of Daniel speaks to us as Christians because we are living as exiles in the world today. We're waiting for Christ's return to take us home, to establish his kingdom. And we're going to learn all about that in the book of Daniel. 1 Peter 2.11, the apostle told us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And in fact, I think that verse might even be a reference to Daniel chapter 1. We'll talk about that next time. But for this reason, the book of Daniel has a lot to say to us as a church, with a capital C, meaning as Christians, how are we to live? It's got an awful lot to say to us as individuals living in this kind of land and living in this, this spiritual exile as we wait kingdom come. But before we get to that kind of illustration, I should say application, I want to take time in our last 10 minutes, having considered all of that history, all of that prophecy, to consider the book of Daniel and the lessons it teaches us as a nation ourselves. And by that, I mean our nation, the United States. If God was willing to annihilate Judah, his chosen people, in his chosen city where his holy place dwelt, do we dare to think that we are exempt from the same kind of treatment? Psalm 75, verses 6 through 8 says, Not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. The psalmist is saying, God picks up and puts down nations and kings and peoples, and no one is exempt from the judgment of the Lord. And when you look at the reasons why God exiled Judah or judged Assyria, or judged Babylon, or drove the Amorites out of the land, are not these United States guilty of the same things? The three main reasons that God judged Israel, the first one was immorality, specifically sexual immorality. Look at our nation. Rampant fornication. Not only is it accepted that kids are going to sleep with each other, it's encouraged. Don't even get married until you've tried it. There are some of you in this room that think in your mind, you never say it out loud, look, kids are going to do what kids are going to do. Why are we going to make such a big deal out of it? The adultery that goes on. The deranged pornography. Billions of dollars. Billions of dollars in this country go to pornographic work. Homosexuality. Sometimes you look around and you think, am I crazy? That we're going to take this and not just legalize it, but honor it and celebrate it and enshrine it and defend it and criminalize people that oppose it? Not only that, but extending now to the transgender thing. Where not only can man be with a man sexually and God doesn't mind and a woman can be with a woman sexually, but what is a man anyway? What is a woman anyway? Let's do surgeries on ourselves and on our children to defile the body that God has given to us. To say nothing of the fact that we reject the roles that God has given to men and women. 
Oh, you might be opposed to all those things, but you say, wives, submit unto your husbands, and you chafe and you get angry, and you want me to qualify the statement. We enshrine and honor and celebrate things like that in the name of liberty and equality. What a degradation of those words that is. Idolatry. How is it that the default position, not actually, but at least in the way we perceive ourselves, religious position in our nation is atheism? That this is what most people think. This is what everybody thinks. You believe in God, what's wrong with you? Never mind the fact that most people do, but this is the way we talk and act and try to seem smart. That there is no God. Even Christians bow and scrape to people that don't believe in order to make themselves acceptable to this person that doesn't even believe in their Jesus. Or the arrogant heretics, the people in the church that have rejected the historic truths of the faith and are proud of it and promote it and blast it and call up pastors and call up other Christians and get in their face with these things. Even down to the alarming rise of paganism in our own cities. I don't know for sure. I don't have a word from the Lord. I just have a very strong worry. The next wave is going to be neo-paganism. We're going to reject atheism. We're going to reject Christianity. And it's going to be back to Odin and Thor. It's already happening. Say nothing of the fact that our Christian churches are full of false teaching. Full of sin. Full of loveless hearts. You're either teaching a false gospel or you're ranting and raving and despising the people that you're supposed to be out there saving. What about injustice? I don't want to minimize the spiritual victory that we had earlier this year, but we're still slaughtering our unborn children. We've invented scientific techniques to kill babies in the womb. We wink at corruption in our politicians and we vote for them anyway. Get mad at the other side for doing it, but we have good reasons. We have entire industries that are meant to cripple each other with debt. We sign contracts with no intention of actually fulfilling them. It's widespread. We crowd our prisons. I don't care what your politics are. We have incarcerated more people in this country than any country ever. Are we really, is that really what we're about? This is what we do? I've been in there, and I had some pretty, I'll say naive opinions about that stuff before I went in there and saw these men. What are we doing? The products that we sell to each other, that we know they're bad. People that are marketing addiction to people. Addiction to food, addiction to video games, addiction to money. And we have the audacity to claim the moral high ground for ourselves? To point at some Muslim country and see what they're doing and say, ah, can you imagine? I mean, I could go, what about gluttony? What about wrath? Or materialism? What about, here's, a, here's one called asadia. Do you know what that is? Asadia is something that was invented, or not invented, it was described by the desert monks in the early church. And they described it as spiritual listlessness. And they said, other than pride, it's the worst sin a man can commit. To have just a spiritual, lackadaisical indifference to the things of God intoxication. That's how we have a good time. We get high. We get drunk. Are these things not also evil? When I remember that God is just, it makes me tremble because these are the things that God has judged other nations for and we've exceeded them in our wickedness. If it wasn't for Genesis 18, 25, that God doesn't punish the righteous with the unrighteous, 
I don't know if we'd have any chance. And yet, can you not see that God is trying to get our attention? Twice in a row, we've had violently contested elections. Widespread riots and unrest, a global pandemic, now financial hardship, and yet nobody's repenting in sackcloth and ashes before the Lord. We're just pointing the finger at the other guy. How many times in the Bible does God say, I shook you like a rag doll to get your attention, and you doubled down on this stuff? Luke 10, 13, Jesus said, if Tyre and Sidon had seen the things that you saw, they would have repented long ago. They're going to stand in judgment of you on that final day. Psalm 33, 12 says, blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We as a church are to be the voice of God in our community and the voice of our community before God. And listen, I'm not saying that the church has not been speaking on these things. We have. And yet, the the nation continues to hurtle down this road. I'm not even talking about politics. Who cares about politics? I'm talking about the souls of our people. The church has been squeezed in the last few years, mostly and largely from the left side of the political divide. I'm telling you, friends, it's going to come from the other direction next. It's going to be people who look at this and say, you know what, what do we need them for anyway? When, that, when the, the crisis of the day passes, you know, all that woke stuff is peaked, by the way. It's on its way down. I'm not saying it's not dangerous, but it's, it's, it's on its way out. People don't like it anymore. They're done with it. What's going to happen when it's gone? You think Satan's going to just give up? No, he's going to say, fine, if this is where you want to go, you really want to and, you know, lean into the, the male and female thing, fine. If, rather than making you into homosexuals, I'm going to make you into the most licentious, lascivious men and women you've ever seen. And the church is going to be over there saying, we can't do this. And then we're going to be accused of the ones that are prudes and cancel culture and trying to suppress who we really are. What do we need them for anyway? What do we worship before Christians? Christians are telling us to be nice to each other. We can't be that way anymore. Let's have a God of war. Let's have a God of anger and we can finally crush our enemies. That's what's coming next. Be careful who you hitch your wagon to. Unless God in his mercy will pour out a revival, we are in serious danger. We need to enshrine and affirm righteousness in this country and not hide behind something silly like, well, you can't legislate morality. Of course you can. Not pointing at other countries and saying, can you believe the laws that they have about homosexuality? It's so oppressive. Well, what about God's law? God made a nation and he had laws that looked a lot similar to that, didn't he? God insists that his people and his kings and other nations worship him and walk in righteousness. And just because we live in a pluralist society does not mean we can compromise on that, Christians. Our job is to call the USA not to accept the stories of the Bible as good lessons for your kids, but to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we'll have to say with Psalm 19.9, true and righteous altogether are the judgments of the Lord. Now, I usually prefer, and I think you know this if you've been here for a while, I prefer to speak of joy. Nehemiah says, the the joy of the Lord is your strength. I prefer to herald the good news with a smile on my face because that's exactly what we have. But sometimes you need to feel the heat a little bit. In the book of Daniel, we will learn how to conduct ourselves in wicked times. But before that can happen, you need to realize that that is the kind of day you are living in right now. 
Be sober, Christians. Be sober-minded. We can see the truth. We can see that God is at work and that so is the devil. And we can't get caught up in the same fleshly stuff everybody else is. We've got to be able to see things the way they are and to speak the truth in love as Jesus did.